Good morning, folks. Good to have you this morning. You can, you can find your seats. We're going to dive into the scriptures together. We enjoy having a long fellowship time. The Bible commands us to fellowship with one another. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians. That's the book we're going to be going through this fall. We go through books of the Bible here. We've done that for years. We're approaching going through every book of the Bible. So at the end of next year, roughly, we'll probably be through the entire scriptures, verse by verse, word by word. And so um, that's just something we're committed to because we want you to know God's word. It's the gift he gave to us to reveal who he is. And 2 Corinthians in particular is given to us to reveal the fact that God is the God of all comfort. Like Paul wrote this book. It's one of several letters. We have two of those letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians. That The apostle Paul, who was an apostle called by God, came. He planted churches all over the Roman Empire and traveled to spread the name of Jesus. He was someone who was a Jew who killed Christians for a living. That was kind of his job, was to go around and round up these Jews that had abandoned the faith and become Christians and kill them and exterminate them out of the empire. And one day, God got a hold of his life, and Paul surrendered his life to Christ, and it radically transformed everything he did with his life for the rest of his life. And so he wrote these letters. We have many of his letters in the New Testament, but one church in particular, 2 Corinthians, or the church in Corinth, he had a special heart for and would continue to write back and forth to this church. And we're told right at the beginning of the book, he says, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He says, I'm writing this book because I want you to understand the comfort that your response to Jesus has brought me, that your response to Jesus has brought the other churches, and your response to one another and Jesus has healed your church. And Paul is writing this letter to kind of communicate um, just his joy and his comfort in knowing them, in serving them, in being uh, the pastor and overseer of the church in Corinth. And so it's really cool if you think about it. And he even says, you know, he praises God. This isn't about praising them. It's not about praising some system. He's like, I just give all the credit to God. And he says, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of you who have been here, you know this, but I say it on a regular basis. The name Lord Jesus Christ means a lot. It, it literally sums up the God of the entire Bible because Lord when Paul would say this, means Yahweh. It's the Bible name that God gave himself for his people to call him by in the Old Testament. Jesus means Yahweh saves. It's the same name as Joshua, actually. It's the one that saves, that, that is going to take you into the promised land of the Old Testament when Joshua was the one that led them into the promised land. So he is the Yahweh who saves, and Christ actually means Messiah. It's the promised Messiah of the Old Testament that God said, you can't save yourselves. And you have to wait for me and you have to trust me by faith to believe that I'm going to someday send a savior either for you in your generation or for your children in their generation or for your grandchildren in their generation. But we all believe by faith that a savior is coming to save us because we can't save ourselves. And that's the story of the whole Bible, by the way, because all of us are still waiting for a savior to come to get us out of this mess, right? It's, it's the same story. It hasn't changed. There's just different revelations, different pictures of how that story has progressed. We have the picture of Jesus. In the Old Testament, they didn't have that picture yet. Last week, we looked at aroma. 
All of our podcasts are online, and so you can go and listen to those. We talked about aroma last week, and we talked about you all being farts for Jesus. And so if you don't know what farts for Jesus means, you really need to listen to the message, because that's kind of what the whole message was about. You know, to some it's the aroma of death, to some it's the aroma of life, right? And you know that, especially with a bunch of guys, you let one go and you're like, ha ha, and you think it's funny. And everybody else is like, that's disgusting. Like to you, it's like, I did something really special there. And everybody else is like, you're nasty. Like Paul writes that, like you can go back and read it, but it's there. And then this week, what we're going to look at is glorious, that the God of all comfort is glorious. I have a friend of mine that he will not use the word awesome unless he's talking about God. He just won't use it. He'll never say, oh, that's awesome, or that was, he won't do it. He says, the only person that deserves that word is God himself, because he is so glorious and so beautiful and so wonderful and so amazing. And you know, this is something we've lost in our culture. We have lost the glory of God. And what we've done is we've either turned it into something that's like someday the glory of God, or we turn it into almost legalism where it's like this fear that we're afraid of God, right? And it's like, oh, God's glory. I can't get close to him. I can't. And that's not new. That's actually, we're going to look today, exactly what God's people have been doing all throughout human history. And God keeps entering into human history. He keeps trying, which is why we have this book, is all of God's attempts to show up and show his glory and show who he is to people. And they're either rejection or acceptance of his presence. I mean, that's the story of the Bible from beginning to end. And so we're going to look at this idea. And as we drop into the story, you have to remember where Paul's at, right? We're dropping into a book, but there's also a history behind this. And if you don't understand some basic things, it's easy for you to forget where you're at in the story. So here's what Paul's interaction with Corinth looked like. He founded the church. He traveled to Corinth, a couple of other people, and they started the church in Corinth. Just like Pastor Antonio and his wife Ada have traveled to Bloomington, okay, to start a Spanish-speaking church, and we are partnering with them, supporting with them. We're bringing our partners in so that they can start a Spanish-speaking church because it's desperately needed in our city. They moved here. They came here. They're founding. So Paul comes. He finds the church. Then he leaves. He starts the church. He puts people in charge, and he moves on to start another church because that's what he is. He's a church planter. He raises up men. He turns it over, lets them lead, and he steps away. And and that's his call. He's an apostle. He's a church planter. That's what God had called him to do, right? We're not all supposed to be that. We're not all supposed to just keep switching churches. That's, That's a special calling that Paul has. And then he writes a letter to them when he finds out how terrible they are. That the church is in complete disaster. They are not obeying the law. They don't know their Bible. They don't care to know. They're just excited to know Jesus, but they're letting all kinds of crazy stuff happen in the church. And in his his letter, (laughs) which could be the first letter that we have or not, but in one of his letters, he says one of the crazy things that was happening was that a young man was sleeping with his father's wife. Not his mom, because his mom probably died and his dad remarried, but he's sleeping with his father's wife. Paul's like, what are you doing? (laughs) This is not permissible in the world, and you're letting this happen in the church? And that, if that person thinks that's okay, then they're in trouble because I don't know if they know God or not. I don't know if they have the Holy Spirit, if they think it's okay to use someone else's wife for their benefit. 
Like, like, you guys got to confront this. And he lists a ton of things. There were people coming to communion. We're going to have communion next week. They would wait to come to communion, and then they would steal the communion bread and then, like, eat it all. And no one else could have any. And the church wasn't confronting it. They were like, well, we just don't want to judge Bob. He's really hungry. We'll just let him eat all the communion. No! That's not the purpose of communion. <laughs> like, you want to share with everyone, and you're coming selfishly and being like, ah, and let no. And so Paul writes his letter to the church to say, what are you doing? This is, there's a lot of common sense stuff, but, but I need to clarify. So then, okay, he writes this letter, and then the Corinthians write a letter back to clarify. They're like, wait a minute. So you're telling us we can't let this guy sleep with whoever he wants to, and we can't just eat communion bread, and like, we, we got to actually do something? Yes. So they write a letter back to him, which is common. You're, you're having this communication. So then some, some people believe that's a lost letter. There were either three or four letters that were written. We only have two of them. We don't know where the other two are. God decided we didn't need to know, right? Like, just like you have a lot of letters and you don't need all of them. You just, there's some that are special. Well, these two are the special ones God said you can keep. The other ones, he's like, yeah, no, just, we don't need those. And so then Paul has maybe his first epistle, 1 Corinthians, which we have written, he comes back again because he has to have a painful visit because their letter back to him, the reason he has to go to Corinth is their letter back was, was like confronting him saying, we're not dealing with this. We're just going to mess up the church. People are going to get mad. People are going to leave. We're, no, 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 no. We're not, we're not going to deal with this. And Paul's like, then I'm coming to visit. This has to stop. And so Paul leaves the mission field to travel back to Corinth to say, you've got to stop this. If you love people like I love people and, and you want people to love God like God wants to be loved, you can't allow this to happen. And then there could be another severe letter, we don't know if they're, again, three or four, that Paul would have written. And this letter was like scathing. He went to a painful visit. They still didn't deal with their sin. They still wanted to have church their way, do life their way. And he writes a scathing letter of like, I'm done. And then we have 2 Corinthians that basically says, after all of that process, I'm so comforted because I've seen that you guys get it now and you've changed and you've confronted the sin and you're forgiving. We did a sermon a few weeks ago on forgiving one another. You're learning how to forgive rightly. Not the junk, fake forgiveness of our world. Real, true repentance and forgiveness. And Paul is encouraged. He's comforted. He's amazed at their response, because he sees the Holy Spirit working in this church. And then he says, I'm getting ready to come back to you because I need to collect the offering to take to the churches around to support them. You see, because the churches would support one another, and Paul was coming to get the offering that the Corinthian church got. So let's dive in. 2 Corinthians 3.3 says this, it is clear, he says, so this is clarity, that you are Christ's Letter. Remember, Paul has written multiple letters to this church. They're hanging on to these letters that he wrote them as kind of, this, this is what Paul says. This is what Paul says. Like they're hanging on to these letters and like, whoa, whoa, hold on. Don't hang on to the letter. Hang on to the person that authored the letter. You are Christ's letters. These are just words on a page. If you're not surrendered to Christ, if you're not walking with him, then you might as well use this for toilet paper because it's not changing you. It might as well just be sitting on your shelf and you look at it as if like, oh, that's another important book, but it's not quite as important as my biology book, but it's up there, you know? Like, like Paul's like, it is clear 
that God is writing his story through you by your response when I wrote to you and explained the word of God to you and you responded to it properly, oh, dude, you need to be excited because that is evidence that God is actually in your life, that he has a relationship with you, that you want a relationship with him. He's like, you are being written right now. Your life is being written and you should be so comforted by that. And you know what the great part about God writing our letter is? He puts it all there. You ever read David, King David's letter of his life? You ever read about David's letter, the letter that God wrote about King David? All the messes there, his adultery, his murder, murdering habits. His, I mean, but so are all the Psalms and his worship and the grace of God on his life and God's forgiveness and love for David. See, God doesn't hold back just like Paul didn't hold back. He puts it all on display. I'm not going to hold back. It's okay. We can talk about sin. We can deal with sin because we have a God that forgives it. But to not talk about it and not deal with it means you don't believe the right things about God because you're hiding it. Why? What are you afraid of? We have a God that forgives, that wants to restore, that wants to heal you. Is it because you don't want to be healed? You don't want to be changed. You don't want people to know because that's your little idol you want to hang on to and I'm not turning that over. And so Paul says, look, you are Christ's letter produced by us. <laughs> like we produce letters for you, but you are becoming, we are going around telling people about what God is doing in this Corinthian church. It is becoming the story that we're taking out around the world is how we had this interaction. It didn't go well. Let her back, let her back. There's division. I had to come visit you and all. And, but you repented. And Paul is like, this is how the church is supposed to work. He says, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on stone tablets that are heart on stone tablets, but on stone tablets that are hearts of flesh. Okay, so not on stone tablets, but on tablets that are hearts of flesh. Here's the key. In the Old Testament, God delivered his people from slavery. Okay, he saved them out of slavery. They were delivered. They were saved. They came out of slavery. They, they didn't do anything to get out of slavery. God literally delivered them through miracles, took them out, destroyed an army to take them out. Like it was all God doing it because he just loves to deliver people. That's what he loves to do. That's what he's in the business of doing. But on Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, he gives the Ten Commandments and God actually chisels with his own finger, with lightning, I don't know how he did it, chisels in stone the Ten Basic Commandments to live by. Remember, in Genesis, there was one command God gave his people. Don't eat that tree. That's it. Rest of the world is yours. Eat whatever you want. Do whatever you want. You're good to go. And just like us, Adam and Eve are like, what? but that's the thing I want, so I'm going to do that. <laughs> God's like, well, if you do that, you're going to die. It's going to bring death into your life. You, you, I'm going to have to punish sin because I am glorious. My glory cannot tolerate rebellion and treason and sin. I can't tolerate it. If, I, if God did, he would be unjust. Now he's playing favorites. Well, I like you, but not you. And I'm going to judge you, but not you. See, that's how our world works. 
That's how other religions work. Christianity is the only religion that says God's killing all of you unless he saves you. You can't work, you can't do enough, you can't like get your goods to outweigh your bads. Doesn't work that way. We are all in the same boat together. As we say at our church, because our church is foot of the cross church, FX church, we are all equal at the foot of the cross. All of us. We are all in the same boat. And he says, look, this, what's happening in your life is not because you guys are, are obeying these 10 commandments written on slabs of stone. What's happening in your life is that you are allowing the spirit to do its work. You're allowing yourself to be confronted. You're not running out of the church. You're staying through the mess of the church. You're allowing your heart to be changed. You're confronting sin. You're being confronted with your sin. You're having this difficult process that's called sanctification, making you be more glorious or holy is what sanctification means. You're being sanctified and it proves, here's the beauty of it, it proves when you go through that, that your heart is God's. So you might think, why do I keep sin? Why do I keep messing up? What? If you're thinking that, then that's the spirit of God who hasn't given up on you. He hasn't turned you over to give you a heart of stone that's not soft. He's still softening you if you recognize sin, if you're still crying out to him, even if you're a train wreck, okay? The God of all comfort is looking at you and saying, I don't want you to live this life because it's not glorious. It's not the glory that I'm looking for. But if you recognize it, it means he's still there. Look at what he says in Exodus 21. Right after giving the Ten Commandments, look at what happens. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain surrounded by smoke. When the people saw... It, they trembled and stood at a distance. Underline that in your Bible. Earlier, God said he wanted, to call all, he wanted all the people to wash and all the people to come up on the mountain. All of them. He wanted them all to come up the mountain together to experience his glory, his presence, to know him. And Moses was going to be the one that went kind of in fully to the presence of God, into the cloud, but he wanted all the people there, and the people said, no. We want to keep God at a safe distance in our lives. We don't want to be too religious. We don't want to be too churchy. We need to keep God at a safe distance. Can you imagine having a relationship with someone where they told you that? Well, I love you, but you just stay over there. We can't sleep in the same bed. We need to be in different beds because you really annoy me. Yet most of us do this with God. We don't want him too close to our life. We don't want him messing it up. We got it figured out. We got our plan. We got everything. So here's what they do. Look, it says... You speak to us, Moses, and we will listen. <laughs> Have you read the story of Exodus? They didn't listen to Moses ever. They, they disobey him constantly. They will not listen to him. They even make a plot to kill him and kill his wife and get rid of his whole family. Like, it's, it's horrible. Like, oh, we'll listen to Moses. And God's like, no, you, if you won't listen to me, you're not going to listen to Moses. That's why Jesus said in the New Testament, his own people, he looked at them and said, you killed all the prophets God sent to you. You tried to kill Moses. 
Every time God sends someone to warn you because he wants you to experience his presence, his comfort, his glory, you're like, I'll kill that guy. I don't want anything to do with that. He goes on, look at this, and he says, they said to Moses, but don't let God speak to us, Moses, or we will die. They're not wrong. If you are that close to the presence of God, if you are that close to God, it means you're willing to die because you understand the glory and the holiness of God. And you know you're worthy of death for the stupid, idiotic things you do every day. It's a miracle we're still alive. It's not wrong. They didn't answer wrongly. They knew that if we're not willing to deal with God on his terms and he speaks to us, we're toast. So we want a mediator between us and God. We, want, we don't want to listen directly to God. You just tell us what to do. Kids do this all the time in families, right? They play mom and dad against each other, right? What, what did mom say? What did dad say? How's that work? And what does that expose about the child's heart, right? Like my mom never threatened when, my dad get, when your dad gets home. That was never a threat. I was more scared to death of my mom than I was my dad. My, my mom beat a drug dealer with a broom down the street in front of the pastor's house in our town, chasing the guy with a broom because he wanted after my brother. And she's like, Victor, get out of my yard. And she's sweeping. He comes at her and she just, bam, he falls back off the porch and she chases him. The pastor comes out of the house because he's hearing Victor scream as he's running down the road. And my mom's just pounding him. The pastor's like, what is going on? She's like, he's trying to sell drugs to my son. This ain't happening. And he's not, he's not going to be in my yard. Good day, pastor. And she just walked back home and went back in the house. My mom is the best shot in our family. She carries a 38 special in her purse. When we go to the shooting range as a kid, when we go as a family to the shooting range, my mom would put like right there, bam, 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 bam. My dad and I'd be like all over the place. And my mom's like, boom. And she'd bring the target back. And my dad and I are like, dang, don't mess with mom. Like, that's what they're saying. They're, they, again, it's the, heart of, it's the heart of, I don't have a relationship with you, so i got to bring someone else in versus, no, we have a real relationship so we can have hard conversations. We can deal with difficult things because there's a confidence in our relationship that allows us to do this. They didn't have that confidence because they didn't want that confidence. Moses had confidence in the God of Abraham. He had confidence in the God that had delivered him. And he went into the cloud knowing I may never come back. I may die, but I would rather go into the cloud and go with God than to live with them without the presence of God. And that's exactly what Paul's writing and referring to in his letter to the Corinthian church. And then he says, Moses responded to the people. Look at what, he, look at Moses' response. Moses didn't say, yeah, I'm going to be the mediator. That's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be the pastor. I'll tell you all what to do. Moses is like, don't be afraid. What are you afraid of? For God has, not come to, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and won't sin. Like, what are you afraid of? God doesn't want to take anything good away from you. He wants to take sin away from you. The problem is you see sin as good. So you don't want it taken away. And then Moses is like, what are you afraid of? Like Moses is like, I don't think we know the same God. The God I know told me to go to the mountain. I'm going. 
He told you to go to the mountain too. Why aren't you going? They're like, we're afraid. Why are you afraid? He just slaughtered a huge army on your behalf through a miracle. He made miracle plagues happen in Egypt. And you're going, I don't, I don't know if I can trust him. What? How much more does the God of the universe have to prove than making his own son pay the price that you deserve? Because I wouldn't want my son to pay the price for someone else's sin. I would be going to wherever that is. Like, my son's not dying for you. You're the moron. And yet God, out of his great love, Jesus said, I have to die. I have to give my life. Death has to happen but spiritual death, can, we can be saved. Look at Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says this. Right after Exodus, you have the book of Deut Deuteronomy, um, is written, and this is the law. And it says, but if your heart turns away and you do not listen and you are led astray to bow down to other gods and worship them, I tell you today that you will certainly perish and will not live long in the land you are entering to possess across the Jordan. This is not like you'll certainly perish because I'm going to get you. Your sin will kill you without God sending a lightning bolt. You know that? Like, you do sinful things God tells you not to do. You will die quicker. I promise. You just will. You sleep with as many people as you want to sleep with, however you want to sleep with them, and you will end up with a disease. I promise. It'll happen. Eventually. Like, sin produces what it produces. And that's the point. The, the Bible tells us what to do. It tells us what not to do because God designed us. He built us. And he's saying, don't do it this way, because if you do it this way, it affects the DNA of your soul, and it corrupts it, and it, it gets passed down generation to generation. You need a new spiritual DNA. And so he goes on, and he says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you. I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live love the Lord your God, obey him, and remain faithful to him. This is like, the, this is like relationships 101. Okay, here it is. Choose to be in a relationship with someone so it's not about the two of you. It's about producing something beyond the two of you. So don't do that. Oh, we love each other. That's not going to last. You're going to hate each other soon. I promise. It's going to happen. You're going to look at each other and be like, I don't like you anymore. I mean, my wife and I, I think it was year five, stood in the kitchen. She looked at me and I looked at her. She goes, I... I don't like you. And I looked right back at her and said, I don't like you either. And then our doorbell rang and it was time for small group. Literally, that's what happened. And people came in for small group and we're like, yeah, we don't like each other. Just letting you know, you need to pray for us. Like we're in, this is hard stuff we're going through. Like if it's not bigger than you, when that is said, you'll walk away. But see, Susan and I came together for God's purpose, for his church, for him to build us into people that he was making us to be. And I need her to sanctify me, and she needs me to sanctify her. Because without one another, we're in trouble. And God put us together, let no man separate. So that's thing one. And then he says, it's got to be about something bigger than you. It has, your marriage can't be, I like you, you like me, we're doing this. It's good if you like each other. We liked each other in the beginning. It was great. We like each other now. It's going well. Thank you. We're empty nesters. We're finding out how to like each other again. It's wonderful. Okay? We went on a couple of dates, like two dates this week. Two. We went on two dates in a week. That's, That's like a miracle. Okay. So he, and he goes on and he says, look. He says, so that you may live. See, we keep trying to get life 
out of one another for right now. And God's saying, no, 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 no. If you want real life, live for something beyond yourself. And then he says, look, love the Lord your God. So you got to have a love here. This isn't, well, I tolerate you. We just need to do the right things so we can get through this life. No, there needs to be love, care. And then he says, look, obey him. There has to be submission to one another. There has to be something bigger than you as the boss that you are coming under to obey. And then he says, remain faithful. The Bible says, do not leave the wife of your youth. Don't do it. If you do it, is it forgivable? Yes, it's forgivable. But why would you want to just keep doing stupid things to be forgiven instead of doing righteous things for the glory of God? Stop doing stupid things. So that God can get all the glory and instead of you and Satan getting some glory for the sin. And then he says, look at this, for God is your life and he will prolong your life in the land the Lord swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looks at him and says, this relationship that I want you to have, Moses says, this relationship God wants us to have is a fulfillment of prayers and promises made way before you were even thought about. And we're so consumed with our little life and our little world that we don't pause for a minute to think about how in the world did I, it is a miracle I'm alive. It's a miracle I'm here. It's a miracle that God has kept his promises to Abraham. He told Abraham, you will be more numerous and fill the earth and more nations will come out of you than any other human being ever. You realize that the three major religions of the world that dominate the world are all Abrahamic religions. Judaism, Islam, Christianity. All Abrahamic. They came from Abraham's sons. God is still fulfilling his promise to Abraham. To this day. That's crazy that God doesn't break his promises. He keeps them. Because he's that glorious. He goes on to say this. Look, Ezekiel, one of the prophets. So now God's people have disobeyed. They've abandoned the covenant. They, did, they didn't love God. They didn't choose life. They chose death. They left one another. They warred with one another. They did all these things. And now God sends prophets. And the prophet Ezekiel writes this, which is what Paul was referring to. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. It's not for your sake that I will act. Underline. Highlight that in your Bible. Mark the page. Most Christians have been taught that God wants to be on your side. God wants you on his side. He's not on your side. He's on his side. He, is, he wants you for his glory. He's not doing this because you're a great person. Because he just loves you so much. He's doing this because it shows how incredible his full character of love, justice, mercy, truth, all of it is. That's why he does what he does. And look at what he says. I'm doing it for my holy name, which you profaned among the nations where you went. God said, I scattered you to the nations because he was raising up a people that would be a light to the nations, that would show his glory to the nations. And he said, you got scattered among the nations and you, you didn't represent me. You didn't show them my light. You just went along with them. Many of you have come to Bloomington. The question for you in Bloomington, are you going to show Christ's light while you're here? Or are you just going to go along with the mess that's here? God has scattered you here for some reason. He has brought you to IU. He's brought you to Bloomington. I don't know why he brought you here. I don't know sometimes why he brought me here. <laughs> but he did. 
And it's always for the purpose of showing who he is. And then he says, for I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. We got lots of nations represented here this morning. God is gathering the nations to himself as the gospel is being proclaimed. He's fulfilling this commandment. Then he says, I will sprinkle you clean, water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will, look at this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. Instead of a heart of stone. And then he says, I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. A sign that you are walking with God is that you have a desire to know his laws, his statutes, and his ordinances. And how they apply to your life under the new covenant, not the covenant of stone. Now I was reading right now in my quiet time, I'm reading back through for fun the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is one of my favorite books. Everybody laughs when they say that. Like, they're like, what? It's awesome. The book of Leviticus is beautiful. So I was reading this week in chapters 15, 16, and 17. And those chapters give exactly what men and women are to do when their bodies make discharges and when they have sex and when all these things that they don't know what to do and when a woman is menstruating. All the laws, all the rules are right there for what God says the people are supposed to do to handle these situations. If you read that, and you just don't read it and be like, that's, that's dumb, I don't understand that. I've got to find something for me, that's really not for me. If you actually take the time to pause and read that and understand what that means, I'm going to be a little graphic this morning, but it's amazing how, God, how wise God is. If you do the math, there are 31 days in a month roughly, out of those 31 days, a woman normally has her period for seven to nine days. You're thinking, well, are we talking about this in church? Yep, we're talking about this in church. Why? Because it's in the Bible. If, I, if God can talk about it in Leviticus, I can talk about it in church. There we go. Seven to nine days, okay? After her ninth day, her final bleeding, it's another seven days that she has to then go publicly make a sacrifice at the temple. She has to make a sacrifice of two doves. The priest declares her clean. You're no longer bleeding, so you're not at risk to, to spread disease. So then you have, to wait seven, you have to wait seven days, go to the temple, make the sacrifice. If the husband touches his wife or sleeps with her during that time, he is unclean, and he has to make a public trip to the temple to declare in front of everyone, I did what I shouldn't have done to my wife. Instead of loving her and being patient with her during her time when she's miserable, I used her. I'm sorry. And he had to make a sacrifice, and the priest had to forgive his sin, and he was unclean for seven days. Man, sounds like a good God that would look at men and say, why are you trying to use your wife all the time to get off? Why don't you care for her? Literally, if you do the math of Leviticus, you have 15 to 17 days a month, and that's it to have sex. The rest of the time, you're unclean. That's it. And you're doing it during the most fertile time <laughs> because God wants children. <laughs> and he's not going to let you play the game of, well, we can just enjoy each other and have our fun. But we don't want any of the consequences. See, those laws are incredibly loving because it says to a man, you've got to let the church, I mean, the church, the, the priests were in charge of sexuality. 
Like you, you couldn't have sex to your wife until the priest came back. Like she came back and she's like, the priest declared me clean. You're like, praise the Lord, right? And the same on the other side. And if you decided you were going to take matters into your own hands, men, that's the chapter 15 before 16 that says now you're unclean. You have to admit you did it. You have to travel publicly in front of everyone at the temple to say, I did something I shouldn't have done or ask my wife to do something I probably shouldn't have asked her to done. So I'm coming to say, forgive me. And the priest is like, you're forgiven. Go back. Quit doing stupid. You guys didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? Because we don't teach it anymore. We don't care about the laws and statutes and the ordinances of God. If his spirit is working at you, when you read Leviticus, you don't go, that's a bunch of dumb rules. You go, God, why is this good? Now, we are no longer bound by the law. We've been set free by Christ. We are not bound by the law of the Old Testament. But that doesn't mean that those laws aren't loving and kind and good. It's still good to care for your wife. And you want to know why so many kings and people would get multiple wives and have them live in separate tents? Ladies, you know why. What happens if all the women live in the same house? Women? Oh, well, we men can't have that. i got to have a wife for these 15 days and then a wife for this 15 days. So she needs to live in a separate tent from this wife, so I go over to her tent. And then I go over to her tent. So I can use both of them and do what I want to do. And God says, don't you do it. You have one wife, period, and don't you treat your wife that way. By the way, your wife should be in mourning because she's bleeding instead of having a child to my glory, God says. Give her time to mourn. She is hurting. Leave her alone. Love her. Care for her. That's how glorious our God is. He is that loving and caring to boil it down to the basics of things and give us guidance on how to do our lives and you don't even know it's in here because this isn't glorious to you. What's glorious is getting your feels. And God's like, no, 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 this protects everyone. This protects the community. This helps everyone feel loved and cared for. It doesn't mean we have to do it to be saved. No. He goes on and says this. In Isaiah, again, another prophet, I, Yahweh, have called you for a righteous purpose. I want you to do what's right. I will hold you by your hand. God is not in heaven going, I called you to be righteous. You better shape up down there, little boy, little girl. He's like, come on, I'll help you. Just tr come to the mountain. Come, come up. I, I'll cleanse you off. I'll get you clean. Come on. And we're like, no, 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 we just... I want Big Brother to go talk to him. I'm, I'm not doing it. He goes on and he says, I will keep you and appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations. Isaiah goes on to say, he says, it's not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring and protect the protected ones of Israel. I also make you a light to the nations and be my salvation to the ends of the earth. He goes on in Isaiah, arise and shine for your light has come. The glory of the Lord shines over you for look, darkness covers the earth and total darkness the peoples, but the Lord will shine over you and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your radiance and glory. Do you believe that God wants to make you into a person like that? Where through the simple life you live of just obeying him and serving him, 
it is a light that people are like, that's different. I, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know if I want that, but it, there's something different. Yeah, because you have the Spirit of God. It goes on to say in Corinthians, we have this kind of confidence towards God. The reason we can have this confidence that God, I just proved to you, wanted his people to have all the way through the Bible is because of what Jesus did, the Messiah who died for your sins. So you don't have to go offer two doves and then a goat and then an ox and then a lamb. Like that's done away with. Now Christ is the offering for all of it. He has paid all of those prices. And instead of being like, yeah, thank you, Jesus. I can do whatever I want. You should be like, wow, you mean I don't have to offer two turtle doves for that? Nope. I don't have to offer a lamb. I can keep those resources and I don't have to like pay to buy a lamb. Nope. I don't have to give a bull. No. Wow. God has, God has provided a way for me to, to not have to keep coming back, but to just understand that he loves me and he forgives me once and for all. That should just cause us to melt inside. Because you deserve to offer way more than a lamb and a bull and everything else. And you realize that God didn't offer a lamb or a bull or an ox. He offered himself. God the Father and the Son offered themselves. He goes on and says, look, it's not that we are competent in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our, confidence, our competence is from God. You are not competent in yourself. Your competence comes from God. And you have to remember that because if you don't remember that, you'll become arrogant. And instead of forgiving the person that you think sinned against you, which they didn't, they sinned against God and their sin affected you. Let me repeat that. They sinned against God and their sins affected you. They didn't sin against you. They sinned against God. So you let God handle it. That doesn't mean you don't confront them, but it's real easy to say you, you and say, well, hold on. God's been patient with me and he calls my sin out. So I'm going to call your sin out. But we need to struggle and walk through this together. Then he says, look, he has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. The old covenant was the covenant of constant sacrifice, coming back to God, constantly declaring we're sinners so that the whole world would see how much Israel burnt up for their sin. The old covenant was designed perfectly to show you how dead you were inside. The, the, the law of the Old Testament was to, to communicate to you how someone needed to die for how wicked and terrible you were. That's the whole point of the law. The law was to cause you to cry out and say, God, save me. I've given so many lambs and it's not enough. I've given so many bulls and it's not enough. We need you to come and save us. It was to look at your kids because if you remember in the Old Testament, when they brought an offering to the temple, the father was responsible to bring his sons with him. They would slit the animal's throat together. The priest didn't do it. They did it. They watched the animal bleed out into a basin as it's screaming and crying. And the father would look at his son and said, my sin and your sin and your mom's and your sister's sins did this. We got to stop. Where are the men that will do that today? Where are the men that will come humbly before God? This has got to stop. We've got to work together. We can't keep crucifying Christ over and over again. Thankfully, he does die for us because he loves us. And then he says, he's made us competent so that we can be the ministers of a new covenant. Instead of going out to the world and talking just about death, we can talk about life. 
We can talk about the Messiah that isn't coming, but the Messiah who's already come and will come again. Not to the letter of the law. We're not going out with the Ten Commandments saying, you obey, you obey. We're going out with the Spirit of God and saying, these are good laws, and I struggle to obey them too. And you deserve to die, and I deserve to die, and everything else deserves to die because of the curse. But there's somebody who paid the price so that we can live righteously as he's called us to live. And then he said, for the letter kills, but the Spirit produces life. See, when you read this book, the reason we don't like to read the Bible is because it kills. When you read it, it's like, mm. it just, it's just like, ow, ouch, no. Like it's just, and, and then it causes you to look at somebody else and be like, oh, yeah, I killed them. Oh, ouch. Like you start to see things and you're like, I know, I just, I just, I just want cheeseburger and watch football. I don't, I don't want to think about what's going on in the world or in my life. It, but it's also supposed to cause you in that moment of ouch to hear God say, come on okay. I'll heal you. I'll cleanse you. I'll help you. It's all right. I know you're hurting. I know you hurt someone else. I know someone hurt you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you the rest you keep chasing, he says. 2 Corinthians goes on. He says, now if the ministry of death chiseled in letters on stones came with glory. In other words, literally Moses saw God's finger or lightning like chisel stuff. Like that would have been, can you imagine? Being on a mountain with lightning and thunder and you walk into a cloud not knowing if you're coming back. And like all of a sudden it's like you see this rock chiseled out and you're like, huh. I mean the glory of the Lord. And he says, look, it came with such glory that the Israelites were not able to look directly at Moses' face because of the glory from his face. It's why we won't look directly at God's word because we don't want to deal with the glory of God. It's why when someone confronts us with God's word and what he says and they look at us and they try to give us a better way, our first response is not really. Our first response is, oh, yeah. And God's like, I want you to see my glory. The people could have seen God's glory and instead they said, no, we want Moses to do it. And then when Moses comes off the mountain with the glory, they're not like, oh, I want that. I want, I want to see God. They're like, oh, scary man, glowing man. Oh, go away. God wants a relationship with you. I'm, look, I'm, no, I'm not special. I have the gift of being a pastor. That's my gifting, according to the Bible. I am no different than you. I, I'm no better than you. I'm not smarter than you. I've walked with God maybe longer than some of you have. I've struggled with sin longer than some of you have. He goes on and he says, look at this. It was a fading glory Moses would go, he'd get the glory, he'd come off the mountain, be with the people, and it would fade. See, that's like Sunday. You come on Sunday, you get the glory. You get like this feeling. You go to a small group, and then the next day, you're just like, oh, life's miserable. Oh, no. Yesterday, you were singing, praise God, I trusted him, he's awesome, he's great. And the next day, you're like, I hate this life. It's like, what? Fading glory. You're like, we're the same way. And it goes on, it says, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? You keep trying to go see glory, and the glory lives in you. It's right there. It's like right here. That doesn't mean we shouldn't go get some like, encouragement from one another, because when I see the glory in you, I shouldn't look and be like, 
stupid glory person, get out of here. That's, that's what they did with Moses. Like, oh, he's all glorious again. Like, no, like, I should be like, wow, that's amazing. I, I want to know God that way. And he goes on, he says, in fact, what was glorious, uh, or sorry, he says, for the ministry of condemnation had glory, but the ministry of righteousness overflows with even more glory. That God has made us right in Christ and is making us sanctified. In fact, what has been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because the glory that surpasses it. You thought it was really glorious to read all these Old Testament stories and all these books. There's a lot more of those than the New Testament. Oh, no, no, no. That's nothing compared to Jesus in heaven. That is like this, this promised land they had, that's nothing compared to the promised land that's coming one day that Revelation talks about. It's nothing. It is so like, yuck, disgusting compared to what God's going to bring. And that's what Paul writes. And then he says, look at this. For what if what was fading away was glorious? For if what was fading away was still glorious, that, that, that old law fading away, disappearing, no temple, what endures will be even more glorious. What endures, which is your soul, connected to God for eternity in a new heaven and a new earth, is so much glorious than a good life on this earth with blessing and money. Give me a break. He goes on and he says in 2 Corinthians 3.12, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness. See, the reason you're not bold as a believer, the reason I'm not bold about a believer, just like in the Old Testament, they weren't bold, just like the Corinthian church wasn't bold to like confront sin and deal with sin and encourage one another and help one another and love. The reason they weren't bold about it is because they were hoping in all the wrong things and we're the same boat. We got all these glories we're chasing, the glory of an education, the glory of a relationship, the glory of money, the glory of a name, the glory of building a church. We got all these glories we're chasing, and God's going, hello, me. <laughs> Chase me. I'll give you everything else, but follow me, he says. Hebrews 10, Paul may have wrote this letter, could have been someone else, but, the, but, but Hebrews was written to... Jewish people. It says, since the law only has a shadow of the good things to come. In other words, all this was just a shadow. The, this, the lamb that was slain was a shadow of the true lamb of Jesus, right? Like these are all shadows. He says, so it's kind of like a dimly you can't see it. He says they were all shadows. Look at this. And he says that of the good things that were eventually going to come and not the actual form of those realities. We don't have real heaven yet. We don't have real relationship completely with God. And then he says, it, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after. You're trying to get perfect by going to church, by doing all these things. That's not going to make you glorious. That's not going to make you perfect. What makes you perfect is following Christ and doing all those things because you're so in love with him. You want to do what he does and you want to be with his people. That, that's it. But we flip that around, right? Because we're looking to get something from God, just like I read about in Leviticus. We're always looking to get things from people, not give ourselves. And God is a giver. He gave the earth to idiots like us and said, it's yours. And we've done nothing but mess it up. He goes on and he says, look at this. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers, once purified, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? Like... Like if the law wasn't designed to keep reminding you about your sins so you had to cry out to God and ask him to save you, then you would have made the lamb sacrifice and been like, I'm good. You know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I did that, there's my lamb, I'm good now. Yeah, I slept with my wife when I wasn't supposed to. Here's my two turtle doves, you have a nice day, see ya. I'll do it again next week and I'll be back. 
Paul's like, no, don't do that. He says, but it's in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, when they would make a sacrifice, it wasn't the offering that was taking away the sin and giving them what they wanted. It was the priest who would tell them, God accepted your offering. He loves you and he wants to empower you to go sin no more. It was the relationship with God, not the offering. And then he said, for it is impossible. Therefore, we may boldly say, look at this, the Lord is my helper. Not my sacrifices, not my money, not my land. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Goes on in 2 Corinthians, says, we are not like Moses, Paul says, who used to put a veil over his face so the Israelites could not stare at the end of what was fading away. Moses knew he was glowing. Can you imagine that? Moses knew he was glowing and he knew he was afraid if the people saw me not glow anymore, they might not listen to me. Welcome to Christianity 101 in America. Western Christianity is all about the glow, man. It's all about giving the glow, all about having to glow. And we don't want anybody to see the inner workings of the church and the wickedness and the problems that Paul wrote three letters about and traveled twice to confront in Corinth. We don't want to talk about the reality. We oh, everything's great here. We're the best church. We welcome everyone. If I see one more church sign that says all are welcome, I'm going to scream. Not everyone is welcome. If someone walked in with a gun to shoot everybody in the church, they're going to be like, come on in. We'll all die. They're not welcomed. If pedophiles come in and want to run around your children's meeting, you're, you're not welcomed. You're, you're fine to sit in the service, but you cannot, no, you're not welcomed back there. See, it sounds good to say, well, everybody's welcome. It makes you sound like spiritual or like, look at my glory and how glorious we are. Versus saying, we need to be very careful with who we welcome into our lives because there are enemies that are coming in to destroy us. Be very, very careful with what you welcome into your life. Are we supposed to love our enemies? Pray for those who persecute us, as the Bible says? To care for those who are broken and downtrodden? Absolutely. Absolutely we are. And to hope for their restoration? Yes. But you need to be very careful that you don't give them glory that they don't deserve, that isn't, that isn't from God, but it's from you trying to put on an aura. And then he says, look at this. But their minds were closed. What about you this morning? Is your mind closed to the things of God? Do you even care to read this or know these things? Or is your mind open? Are you like, well, I just want the pastor to teach me. I'll just come on Sundays. I'll get a good sermon. That'll be good enough for the week. Maybe I'll go to a small group, get a little bit more. But, you know, are you serious about knowing this glorious, wonderful, beautiful God? He goes on and he says... For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. They can't see the glory of the law. They go back to wanting to obey it and judging everyone. Versus looking at Leviticus and saying, there's glory there. There's beauty there. We don't have to do it. We're not, we're not, I'm better than you because I do or I don't. No, no, no. But do you see the glory of it he's talking about? And then he says, look. The same veil remains and it's not lifted because it's set aside and only in Christ. 
The only way to take aside the veil is to look at the glory of the Savior, to look at the cross and say, I recognize that he died, I recognize he calls me to die, and I recognize he came back to life, and I recognize I have the hope of coming back to life. That is the gospel, period. That's exactly what Paul is saying. That's when you've removed the veil, when you say, I'm done with my life, I surrender. I don't know what that means, I don't know how we're moving forward, but I surrender to you, I am yours, and thank you that you are mine, that you promise that if you come into my life, you will never leave me or forsake me, that no one can snatch you out of my hand, Jesus says. He goes on and says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom to do what? Freedom to die and obey. <laughs> it's a freedom to say, I want to do what God wants to do. And I'm like, oh, i got to do what God wants to do. I'm such a slave to this dumb God I have to follow. Ask me to do. You know our hearts go there sometimes. They do. Instead of saying, wow, I can finally obey. I can, I'm, I'm not trapped in my sin anymore. I don't, I don't have to keep doing this stupid thing, but, but God will help me. Yes, I'm in. I got some freedom. I got, I got an offer of freedom instead of this bondage that I'm in. Praise God. And then he says, the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, look at this, with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the spirit. That word glory to glory, Paul is using the glory word of the Old Testament and the glory word of the Greek. He is literally saying the whole Bible, glory to glory. Your face, if you know Christ, if you accept Christ, your face, will be unveiled to the world. People will know you're different. People will know you're a Christian. You will tell people you're a Christian because Moses came off the mountain to tell people God's word. That's what he did. That's what's gonna happen when Jesus gets in you and starts messing up stuff. For his glory, so that people can see who he is. And it's a beautiful thing. And he says, unveil your face. And then he says, look at this. Proverbs says this, as water reflects the face, so the heart reflects the person. 1 Corinthians 13 says it this way, when the perfect comes, the partial will come to the end. The Old Testament was all the partial things God was doing until he gave himself. When I was a child, Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthian church, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. Many of you are still children when it comes to your spiritual life, and it needs to stop. You gotta stop being a kid. And you got to believe that it's worth growing up. That there's nothing more glorious than being a responsible man or woman of God for his glory. Quit acting like a kid. You know what kids act like? They're always in it for what they can get. How they can manipulate the situation. How they can get what they want. An adult is always trying to say, how can I give my life for my children? And we keep teaching people to go to God to get stuff instead of saying, go to God so he can use you to be the life giver to others. And then he says, look at this. For now we see indistinctly as in a mirror. You got to remember in this day, mirrors weren't very good. They, they were really bad, actually. They weren't like the mirrors we have today. It was like looking at a pond and then somebody throws a thing in and you're like, oh, my face has waves. Like, like that's like the mirrors of that day were not good. And then it says, but then... I'm going to see him face to face. Right now, I got this shadowy image of, of the Bible and who God is. But someday, I'm going to be glory to glory, face to face with him. And it's all going to click. And I'm going to be like, oh, yes, I get it now. 
And then he says, look at this. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Why is the greatest love? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would never perish but have eternal life. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These are beautiful promises. I got two guys that are going to hand some stuff out to you. Dustin and Gary, you can start to pass these around. I've got a little gift for you. Most churches take an offering. We're weird here at FX Church. We don't take offerings. There's an offering box in the back if you'd like to give to our church. We give offerings. We give, right? Children ask for stuff. Adults give. So we're giving you, okay? Take one for all of you. Okay, we're going we're to do a little exercise as we wrap up. You can unwrap it. You can unwrap it. It's going to make some noise. It's fine. What this is, as you get it, this is a mirror. It's a mirror. I mean, sorry if you don't get the color you want, you can trade with someone later, okay? Like, just saying. If you don't like the color, there's other colors. Maybe you can make a trade with somebody, you know? I want you, and this side's really slow with the mirrors. You guys are fast. Like, there's, you guys got to move quicker. That's, that's all right. It's good. When you look in a mirror, when you get this, I want you to look in this real quick. Look at yourself. Oh, gosh, that's bad. Especially with the light shining off my head. Like, look at that thing. Okay. Look at that melon. Okay, now listen, we love to look at images of ourselves. I know that because I've seen most of your social media pages. Okay, so <laughs> we love to look at ourselves. And Paul says, look, right now we're looking like indistinctly. Like this mirror is really small. I can't get my whole head in it. Like it's hard. Yeah, exactly. Okay, Paul says, as, when you look in the mirror of your spiritual life, how do you see yourself? If this is Christ and you're looking at Christ and he's reflecting back to you what he thinks about you, what do you think Christ thinks about you? Take a picture of this on the screen. There's 101 truths about your identity in Jesus. How he has made you and wants you to be his glory. 101 things. And when you look down this list, if it doesn't cause you your heart to break, if it doesn't cause you to be like, really, he says that about me? When you look in the mirror, you should see a list like that. Yeah, you see the mark right here. I don't know how that got there. I had like an infected hair. It's like, eh, it's really bugging me. I've shaved it off twice and bled and had the toilet paper on my face. You know what I mean? So like I look, I'm like, but that's always the first thing you see. Like, oh, there's a spot. Like, what about all the rest? Like, I have all my teeth. Praise the Lord. I don't forget to praise God for all my teeth. I just take them for granted. They're there, they chew, and I'm good to go right? So you have to pay like a thousand dollar bill to have something fixed. And you're like, man, I should take care of those teeth. How do you see yourself? The people of God in the Old Testament saw God at a distance. They didn't see themselves properly and they didn't see God properly. And it cost them so dearly. Jesus came and paid the price because he said, I want you to see me 
And I want you to see who you are. And I want you to see that this is what I think about you. I'm paying the price you owe because I love you that much. And I think even more of you that I'm going to send my spirit to help you because I know it's hard living in this world. So I'm going to give you this incredible book and I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that you can reflect constantly on me, he says. Because that's how you're going to find faith, hope, and love. As we wrap up, Paul finishes this way. Therefore, since we have this ministry of looking at ourselves, seeing the world, looking around us, he says, Because we were shown mercy, we don't give up. You ever looked in the mirror after working out for a while and you're like, this is not working. (laughs) And you're like, I want to give up or buy a different mirror. Because sometimes you get those Walmart mirrors and if you just put two little things in the middle, it'll pull it out a little bit and it'll stretch it. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, I'm doing pretty well, you know? He says, no, 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 don't give up. You've been shown mercy. God has shown you your sin. He's been honest with you and he loves you. And then he says, instead, we have renounced shameful secret things, not walking in deceit or distorting God's message, but commending ourselves to each other, to every person's conscience in the sight of God by openly displaying the truth. That's why you need a church. It's why you need a body. We need encouragement. And then he says, look, but if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. If you feel like nobody else is is seeing what you see, if you feel like you're, you're alone and you look at the image and people don't see you like you see you and what God says about you, it's because they're blinded. They have a veil over their face to the truth of God and the grace of God. And then it says, in their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the full image of God on display. God wanted to raise up Israel to be a light to the nations. We read that in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, in Deuteronomy. He's like, I want you to be a light to the nations. I want you to show my glory. My question to you is, if you're not showing the glory of God, why? James goes on. Actually, we'll finish up with this. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 says, For we are not proclaiming ourselves, Paul says, but Jesus Christ as Lord, he's in charge, and ourselves as your slaves because of Jesus. See, if you get this, you're no longer acting childish, thinking about what you can get. You're thinking about how you can properly give yourself to the God of the universe and to other people so they can see who he is in his glory. And sometimes you have to give them the truth, and it's really painful and really hurtful, but you love them enough to give it to them. And you're patient enough to let God take them through it. And then he says, for God who said, look at this, let light shine out of the darkness. That's a a reference to Genesis 1.1. Has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory. Ready for this? In the face of Jesus Christ. In the face of Christ. You see, when I see you and I come to church and I see believers It changes me because I see the face of Christ. I know your stories. I know what God has done in your life. You don't half the time believe it, but I've seen it. I've seen how God has changed you, how some of you have spent 5, 10, 15, 20 years fighting sin, struggling. 
And God has changed you little by little, and you don't give up. Don't doubt. The God of glory is making you his image, glorious. And you're going to mess it up, and people around you are going to mess it up. But just remember, you're not trying to make people into your image. You're not trying to create some image for yourself. You are becoming the image of Christ. And it's beautiful. Let him do his work. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for the mirror of your word. Lord, I thank you for the folks that are here this morning. And Lord, I thank you that you show us throughout all the scriptures that that you've made a new covenant. The old covenant was one that was supposed to point us to you, to cry out, to save us. Now, because of the old covenant, we recognize our desperate need to be saved for how we've broken your laws, your statutes, and your ordinances. And no longer do we have to try to figure out how to pay for that and do it ourselves but we are required to give our lives, to surrender ourselves to you, to say, you know what, the life I'm trying to get, the life I want, the life I'm doing isn't worth anything compared to the glory of the life you want to give me. And so I surrender to you. You are the Lord, Jesus Christ. You are Yahweh, who is the one who saves, who will be my Messiah. And so, Lord, I pray that if anyone here has never made that decision, they've had a veil over their eyes, they've been closed, and they've had hearts of stone, I pray today would be the day they finally take the veil off and allow you to soften their hearts, and you say, I surrender, I'm done. I pray they would pray that. And know that if they pray that, it's not a trick. You will come into their life, you will change them, and you will start to do your work through your church, through the word, and through the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, for those of us who are believers, Lord, I pray that you would give us the right image of who you are, the right image of who you've made us to be, and the right image of our world and the brokenness and the evil and the terribleness of it, and also the glory and beauty and the hope that we have in you. We pray in your name.